Hey, it's time for Dr. Lisa Gives a Shit. And I'm Dr. Lisa. I give a shit. Oh my God, we had a rousing night last night at Radio Free Brooklyn. We had this really, this really major event of Changi music and Cuban food and Gianluca, the host of uh, Sitting with Gianluca on Wednesday nights at six. Uh, he went to Cuba and made all, and uh, recorded all this indigenous Cuban music. I can't tell you what happened. I did have a couple of drinks. I did have a couple of drinks. Um, and I don't think I embarrassed myself more than I would normally, which was really good. So, uh, which is a lot. I normally embarrass myself a lot. So I don't, I mean, but there are boundaries around that even. Okay. So anyway, thanks so much for listening to Dr. Lisa Gives a Shit. Um, here every Thursday, two to three live. And then there's also like a ton of, uh, shows on the archives. If you go to my show page, and uh, I just want to thank thank you for listening. Um, you know, Radio Free Brooklyn is the best radio station in the Western Hemisphere. I've listened to all of them. And I think that, um, you know, it's a community station and we do a lot of great things for the community um, in all sorts of ways, not just entertainment, but in entertainment, music, comedy, stuff like that. But we also have a lot of programming that is political and local news, and we help, we actually do a lot of helpful things. You know, some after school programs and, and, and other things. We did stuff with scientists. You know, just go to our website. You can, you can find, do your own fucking research. Okay. I'm not here for that. Um, anyway, um, I have a very, very exciting show for you today. Uh, my um, friend, I'm going to say he's my friend, but he's also a very, very, very uh, well-respected and extremely talented artist, Eric Doringer. And I'm going to spell that last name for you so you can look up his website or do any kind of research on him. He's been written about in the Times. He's been written about in every magazine, every art magazine. Um, and, uh, he, he is, I, I'm going to say that he's pretty much beloved by a lot of very, about, uh, by the art community, a lot of authorities in the art community. Uh, uh, he, uh, also has a lot of books with printed matter and stuff like that. Um, he is, uh, prolific, prolific. Okay. He's a fucking workaholic. All right. So anyway, he's a great guy. He's a great guy uh, that I have a lot of respect for. All right, there, we got that out. Uh, so his name is Eric, E-R-I-C-D-O-E-R-I-N-G-E-R. Okay, ericdorringer.com or at Der- Eric Dorringer. And the reason he's been on before, but the reason he's on today is because he just had this uh, major show of his his appropriation work. This work is particularly called Memory Wear Flats. And it's appropriation. What is appropriation? We're getting there. Um, of, um, Mike Kelly, work that Mike Kelly did from 2000 to 2010. And this is work that Eric did on his own. I mean, Mike Kelly had a studio. Let's be real. 
This is like very labor, extremely, extremely labor intensive work that Eric completed over the past three years. So uh, we're going to get there. But I want to give you a little bit of background so you know what we're talking about, right? Because um, you don't give a sh- you don't know about art. Maybe you do. Maybe you could tell me about art. But I'm going to tell you. I'm going to assume that you know shit about art. Okay. Um, I'm going to talk down to you. No. Um, but in case you don't, I'm sc- excuse me if I am talking down to you. So anyway, the thing is, is that um, Eric, in particular, his work is appropriation art. And um, that's a fancy way of saying that his work is kind of a copy of other artists' work, which is an entire genre of art on its own. But there's so much originality in that. And Eric is, I would say, famous. This is the easiest way to explain it. Eric is famous for his bootleg paintings. And what that is, is he took major works of contemporary art that were very famous and, you know, sold for minimum six figures. And he recreated them in a small size and sold them as, you know, as multiples on the street. He started out on the street. Now they sell in galleries for like, I think they're like about a thousand bucks a pop. Eric is also incredibly talented at recreating these works so they you look at them and they look exactly they look you know kind of exactly like small miniatures of the other works so it's kind of like really funny because you can get the same exact work for um you know at the time now there are you know a lot more but at the time it was like when he first started it was like a couple hundred bucks and um questions like why do you need the actual piece of art because you can have this other piece of art that is handmade and it's almost just as satisfying it's just smaller so it it raises all sorts of questions and i'm going to leave you to ponder that or go to eric's website or get a book on appropriation art because i'm not going to spend my whole time here telling you about it um so that's what eric does and um Eric appropriated this particular body of work from a very, 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 even more famous than Eric, I must say, Mike Kelly, who is um, an artist that has been the subject of, sadly, he died in 2012, but he's the subject of multiple museum shows and books, and he's, you know, he's an important part. He's a very important artist in art history. So if you don't know who he is, look that up, okay? I'm going to ask you for a report at the end. Um, so this is a particular body of work that Mike Kelly did called "Memory: The Memory Wear Flats," and these are these were um, wall pieces that measured about. Uh, I'm, I'm going to ruin this, but I don't know. There may be like five foot by. F- six foot or something like that. And there was a whole bunch of them and they were different shapes. Eric did three of these and I'm guessing at the size, I think there were three that were sort of like five feet by three feet or six feet by, I don't know, six by three. He'll tell you, I should know that, but I don't offhand. And uh, memory wear, the thing that's interesting about this is that Mike Kelly appropriated 
memory wear from folk art, and then Eric appropriated it to another level where the folk art was turned into high art, and then Eric changed it again to an appropriation. And the whole thing that's really sort of funny about it is the way the, the, the way what memory wear is. Memory wear is a folk art and it's kind of like a mosaic and it is made of little bits of pieces of could be pottery, could be, um, tchotchkes of all sorts. It could be a watch, a watch face. It could be like a ring from um, a candy machine. If they, yeah, well, they, you know, could be an old ring. I don't know if they have them anymore. Um, it could be like a button from, you know, any era. It could be a, um, it could be, I mean, a button, like I'm thinking like a, you know, political button or, you know, a peace button or something, but it could also be like literally a button you might sew onto a, jacket or anywhere else. And um, so it's all these little tiny, tiny jewels and tchotchkes. Um, could be a paper clip, could be anything uh, from all um, that are. So it's all these things made into a mosaic. Okay. And the origin of it was to sort of collect memories, to make a memory of all these little things and they were arranged in sort of um, an aesthetic way, maybe, you know, to make designs on sort of an abstract level when you step back from it and you couldn't actually identify exactly what the objects are. Um, but what's really interesting, too, is that the, the folk art memory where most of it, you know, was done in a very um, sincere way in like, you know, the 1800s, or maybe some of it might have been done in, um, and even in Africa, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, it's been used in cultures, different cultures. And then when Mike Kelly did it, he kind of took this low art and made it into high art, but he used what was available to him, which was when any like hipster, you know, when any cool dude artist in the sixties or seven, well, those were done in 2000 to in the 2000 to 2010 era would have had available. Now Eric's updated that because it's what's been available to him. Um, okay. I think you get the idea now. Uh, I'm going to bring Eric on and I want to, we are going to discuss because the other thing about Eric's work is that it's performative, meaning that Eric is recreating the experience that the other artist that he's um, appropriating, he also is recreating the experience that they went through in making the work themselves. So all the labor intensiveness this that went into making this work, Eric has experienced. So uh, we're going to find out from the master himself, Eric Doringer. Hi, Eric. Hey, Lisa. Thanks for having me on your show again. Yeah. Uh, can you fill in any of the blanks or correct any of my errors or anything there? I tried to exp I try to lay it out. Uh, I, I think it was pretty well done. Um, I think, you know, maybe one of the important things 
that you just didn't quite touch on was that when Mike Kelly made these pieces, um, he sort of, well, the in the original folk art tradition of memory where um, the kind of support is usually a three-dimensional object, like a jug or oh, a bottle mm-hmm. or a plate or something like that. Um, and for anyone listening at home, I would encourage you to, you know, Google memoryware or memoryware flat if you want to see what the heck we're talking about. Um, but uh, even on eBay, you can find these things. Mm-hmm. And, and like Lisa said, they were sort of these everyday objects that were then encrusted with other everyday objects, smaller ones um, that had some sort of memories in theory for the person that was creating them. And I think when Mike Kelly took this, one of the big shifts that he made was to go from sort of three-dimensional objects to wall works. Um, mm-hmm. So that's where the flat part comes from. Mm-hmm. So they're memory wear and they're flat. Mm-hmm. He did also make some statues, uh, three-dimensional pieces, but for the most part, uh, his series was, you know, they, they were essentially paintings. I mean, they're, they're assemblage or they're... Um, uh, mosaic, you could call them, but they function as a painting. It's a rectangle, it's on the wall, it's more or less flat. Um, and I think that was sort of symbolic of the shift from like a folk art to, you know, a, a high art or a fine art uh, piece. Um, and also the scale was much larger. I mean, typically, again, with the folk art, these are domestic objects that are you know, less than a square foot. Um, and Mike Kelly's are all quite large. Um, the ones I did were roughly four by six feet. Um, he did a bunch that were that size and a few that were even like double that size. So um, they are quite large. And I think the size is kind of pretty important to their power. I mean, they sort of feel like a Jackson Pollock painting or something like that almost, right? It's a very large field it's kind of an all-over painting and you can sort of lose yourself in it if you get up close to it like there's not there's not any traditional representational imagery when you step back it's kind of an all-over field almost like a monochrome painting but when you get up close there's all these little items and i always think of them as being kind of like you have that knickknack drawer you know where you just like toss whatever. (laughs) And it's kind of like that sort of stuff. It's just like a lot of little items, uh, all, all, you know, glued up together. So when you get up close to it, you can identify each object. And really it's very easy to spend a lot of time kind of looking at all the different little parts of them. Mm -hmm. That is, that is, that is a really, that is a really, um, important note that, um, what Mike Kelly did was take it from being, objects and everyday items that were crusted and making it into he made it into fine art he took the technique and made that technique into art um so let's there's so many there's so many i have so many questions um and um so one of one of the things that i think um is is stands out when you really look at the work and you start thinking about making it is the, uh, I don't know, the magnitude of the effort, um, the, the magnitude of how many, I mean, there must be 
thousands and thousands and thousands of pieces in all of these these items. So can you give us a sense of like what what making them the magnitude, what that magnitude was like to create, what it was like dealing with that? Sure. Yeah. I mean, it was a pretty major endeavor um, for this show that I just had. Uh, there were three uh, pieces in the show and each one of those took me about a year to make. Um, not not necessarily working on it eight hours a day, but, you know, they, they, took, they took a lot of time. And, um, you know, I, I sort of I mean, I did some tests to like figure out the technique and then I made one and then I kind of decided I want to do a show with these. So it seems like I should try to make three of them that sort of felt like it could be a decent show. There would be some conversation between the pieces, but it was a really long endeavor and I probably would have wound up hiring an assistant um, or maybe a couple of assistants, but uh, it wound up kind of happening during COVID, the second two pieces I finished during COVID, and I sort of didn't want to deal with finding an assistant, hiring them, having a stranger coming into my studio, um, all that stuff. So it, it did wind up being entirely my labor. And um, Lisa, you and I were talking the other day about how there's another Mike Kelly piece, which is owned by the Whitney Museum. Um that is called more love hours than can ever be repaid. Um, that piece is made out of like stuffed animals that he found at thrift stores, but they were all handmade. So it was like someone's grandma or whoever aunt had made these things and given them. And then they had wound up discarded in the thrift store. So there was that sort of pathos, which I think is somewhat also there with the memory wear and that these are, things that probably had memories attached to them for people to some extent, but they were discarded and they're also kind of like fool's gold in a way. I mean, they're all very shiny and glittery, but nothing is of any kind of monetary value. There are no precious stones or gold or silver. It's all gold tone and silver plate and, you know, plastic gems. So there is kind of this idea of like, they look really, flashy and shiny and whatever, but they're actually made of a very humble material. And I think also maybe there's kind of a thought of how we're just like swimming in junk these days. Um, you know, and that there just are so much, so much of this kind of cheap crap cast off, um, is, you know, very much, a, a part of our culture. Um, but going back to the, the more love hours that can ever be repaid. I mean, you know, these things, I, I can't even fathom how much time I spent on them. And, um, you know, they did have a pretty hefty price tag on them, but it's, you know, at the end of the day, I'm probably making less than minimum wage mm -hmm. for all the time that I spent mm -hmm. working on them. Mm -hmm. When you started the project, did you realize what you were getting into or did it turn out to be more of a endeavor, more of a commitment than you expected? Uh, I don't think I really knew. I mean, I'd made a few small pieces before I made any large ones to kind of figure out the materials I was going to use and the technique. And, you know, I had some sense, I mean, I knew it was going to take a long time, but I guess, first of all, it was hard to get a sense of like how much material I was going to need mm -hmm. to make one of these. And then also I kind of, 
thought that I would get faster as I went along. Mm -hmm. So like I did the first one, it took me a year and I was like, oh, well, I make two more. (laughs) They'll probably only take me six months each. And then that wasn't really the case. (laughs) So um, what attracted you to, I mean, um, you guys, um, Eric makes, I mean, he's capable of making any style of work for real. Um, so what attracted you to these particular, to re, to appropriating these particular works? Um, well, I think the first thing was just that I was so attracted to the original works and, um, I, you know, when, when Mike Kelly had his retrospective at PS1 a few years back, there was an entire room that was, had, you know, maybe mm-hmm. 10 or 15 mm-hmm. of them. And it was a really stunning installation. And I spent, you know, a lot of time there. And I just, I thought they were really what fantastic about them? Yeah, what, what about what about them attracted you? Um, I think it's, it, I mean, I think, first of all, there's the fact that they're shiny and colorful, mm-hmm. you know, that, that kind of sucks you in. But then there's just so much to look at and so many little moments in each one. And just... Um, you know, I loved looking at all the stuff that was in each one and mm-hmm. kind of going through mm-hmm. them. And, uh, you know, so I, I think that was the initial thing was I was really attracted to the work, but then, you know, with, with all my work, I think I'm, I'm sort of interested in the conversation between my piece and the original artwork. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. um, and I think what I, liked about this series was that I could in a sense copy the works as far as like using the same materials and the same color schemes and the same sizes. But, you know, I knew that there was no way I could make an exact copy as far as like putting a blue button in the upper left corner and having a keychain next to that with a dinosaur on it and then a yellow rhinestone. I mean, you know, there's no way I was going to be able to get that you know a copy that close um so uh, you know there's sort of this idea of like is it a copy or isn't it you know Mm -hmm. they are certainly inspired by mike kelly and most of his pieces in this series have these kind of distinctive wooden frames and i sort of copied the frame also uh for two of my pieces but you know again it's not an exact copy like if you took a square foot of Mike Kelly's piece and tried to superimpose it over one of mine, you know, Mm -hmm. nothing would Mm -hmm. line up. Um, So, so there was kind of an interest in like making a copy that's also not a copy and like, Mm -hmm. where do you draw that line of, of originality? And then there's also what you were sort of talking about in the intro, which was that Mike Kelly was essentially appropriating this folk art form. So this was something that had been done by many different people. It wasn't something that he came up with himself. Mm -hmm. I mean, he had the idea to, you know, to use it to make paintings as it were, but um, you know, he was sort of already taking someone else's idea and using it to make his art. And then it was like, okay, well then, you know, am I taking Mike Kelly's idea or am I taking the original folk artist's idea or is it some combination? You know, it's, it's, I like that it, that the original mm-hmm. work was already an appropriation in a sense. And then mm-hmm. mine's this appropriation of an appropriation or possibly it's the same appropriation that, that was done by the original artist. Yeah. Yeah. It is really funny. I mean, I find it humorous. I think you do too, right? 
Yeah, and it's sort of like, you know, the snake eating his tail or a labyrinth or something like that when you sort of talk about, you know, who's taking from what because, you know, the the original, I mean, someone had the idea to do it first and then someone else saw this jug that was covered with buttons and was like, oh, that's cool. What did you use to stick them on there? And they made one and then someone else made one. And, um, you know, so I sort of like the idea that it's part of this tradition of, um you know, of making, I guess, that goes back a long, long way and mm-hmm. has been done by many different people. So, so it's very yeah, it's ins- sort of instinctual. It's, yeah, but it's also questioning the whole idea of originality right. and like the artist making something that's brand new and has never been thought of mm-hmm. and whatever, you know, I mean, uh, I mean, in a mm-hmm. sense, we're all mixing, you know, oil paints or whatever. So it is right, right, before. right, right. No, but, and then instinctual but, human nature, like, to collect these kinds of tchotchkes and little things. So, yeah, sure. But you guys are making, you're making fun. I mean, in a way, yeah, there's a certain very human quality to it, a very innate human quality to it. Right. Like we're all magpies. We're all collectors. We all hold on to these things or, you know, we have whatever, something that's kicking around in the back of a closet because <laughs> – it reminds us of something or we haven't gotten around to throwing it out or maybe it's going to be useful someday. So I'm really curious. I mean, one of the things that I love about your work is that when you um, update it, you up, when you re, when you, when you recreate it, like I keep thinking about the Andy Warhol Coke cans and when you redid them, they were or model modern day Coke bottles. Um, and I always think that's so funny because it looked, but I love how, um, I love that aspect to your work. And right. Like, like you were saying, like when Mike Kelly was making these, he had things that were available in, you know, 2000. And when I make them, I mean, not that I was looking for brand new things per se. And, you know, mm-hmm. certainly there's some things in them that go back to, Mm-hmm. at least the fifties, if not before, but, you know, there's also some newer stuff and mm-hmm. that, you know, if you were a, um, uh, you know, someone who is researching art forgery or something, you could, you know, it's like having titanium white in a painting that's supposed to be from 1600. It's like, Oh, you know, there's a button in there from 2017 <laughs> that couldn't have been uh, made by Mike Kelly. He was dead then. <laughs> so um, do you, I'm just curious about the uh, tchotchke the, or whatever. What do you call them? I'm using the word tchotchke. Uh, I don't really have a term for it, but okay. I, I don't know. <laughs> um, items, collection of items. Yeah. A collection of little items. So your collection of little items, how does that, how I'm assuming it's updated from Mike's or how has it changed? Has it been updated? Has it changed? Has it not changed? Well, I mean, like I was saying, I think there are certainly some objects that were made more recently than anything mm-hmm. in his. Um, I did try to find kind of the same sorts of materials. And, um, you know, I didn't want anything that would stand out as being really radically different mm-hmm. or wrong. I mean, I didn't want mm-hmm. something that like lit up or mm-hmm. I don't know, mm-hmm. you know, something like that. Um, but it was also kind of what I came across and, and the way that I found the materials is I would go, uh, on eBay, um, and basically search for broken jewelry or single earrings or craft jewelry or whatever. And 
you know, essentially I think there are people out there who are kind of, you know, jewelry dealers on eBay who buy a lot of stuff at estate sales and like would go through and pull out the stuff that was actually valuable and then throw all <laughs> the broken stuff in a box. And then, you know, you sort of buy it by the pound. Oh, um, so I would get this, you know, five pound box of broken jewelry oh. <laughs> and not exactly know what was going to be in it. I mean, there were some photos in the listing and I obviously would try to get things that were the right colors or that, you know, were the right materials. But a lot of it was just a surprise and I would get this big box and dig through it. And, um, you know, it's actually a pretty labor intensive process to prepare all the pieces to go into the memory where they have to be more or less flat. I mean, they have some dimension to them, but if something was like a brooch, I had to cut the pin off the back. If it was an earring, I had to cut off the post. Um, you know, if, if something was a necklace, I would usually cut it apart into the individual beads. Um, you know, I sort of, I couldn't use anything that was a natural material. Like things had to, well, it could be natural if it was stone or something, it had <laughs> yeah, to be right. hard. So couldn't use wood or leather or rubber or anything like that. So a lot of times, you know, an earring might have like five kinds of beads on it and I have to cut it apart and like separate out the wooden beads and the plastic beads and, mm -hmm. you know, throw away the wood ones. So there is definitely a lot of labor in just kind of preparing everything to go into the pieces. And then, you know, I would, I would cut everything apart. I would kind of sort things based on size and somewhat by color. And, um, and then when I was making the actual works, um, they're set into a tile grout, like sort of like what you would use for your tiles in the shower or something like that. And so I would lay out, you know, maybe like a four inch by four inch section of grout, um, on the, on the board and then start like pressing the objects into it. Um, it was a fairly kind of organic process as far as how the things grew. I didn't really have a set idea of like what was going to go where it just had things fit together. Um, so I would lay out, you know, this little small area and then, um, let it dry overnight and then the next day I go back with a needle and essentially like chip the grout off where it had gone over the front of any of the objects. Oh my God. Um, and then sometimes like it wouldn't really have set right or things would have moved around while it was drying. So I would have to like chip out a whole area and redo it. Um, so there, you know, there was quite a lot involved and, you know, I probably would finish less than a square foot a day for sure. Um, what was that like? Um, s since it's Dr. Lisa, what was it like psychologically? Like, like that is a very, um, what is it? What is the word I'm looking for? It's a very, um, you know, durational. That's the word I'm looking for. That experience is a durational experience, right? So what was, what was that like emotionally? And what was the, um, most, you know, I mean, cut it, you know, you, what you described with an, uh, what was that, a pin or something, a needle and scraping that off, that just sounds horrible. So like, what was, what was really, you know, tell us about the stress. We want to hear, we want to hear the hard parts. Well, I wouldn't really say that it was stressful. I mean, I actually kind of enjoy that, like, somewhat mindless, repetitive kind of work, um, 
I've also recreated a bunch of Solowitz wall drawings. And so something like, you know, drawing 10,000 straight lines on a wall, like mm-hmm. I can get into that and mm-hmm. you know do that every day for a week. Um, so, you know, I kind of enjoyed the painstakingness of it. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I would say, I mean, it was pretty sort of intensely focused work. And I was, I mean, I usually tried to break it up so I wouldn't be like, doing eight hours a day of all one thing. But definitely, I mean, if I, you know, there were periods where I would like work on one every day for a week, you know, more or less all day. And I I think I definitely felt a little crazy after, you know, a few days of that, of just like having, being so focused on a small area and, you know, just sort of like, I mean, there was kind of this odd thing where you would like lose yourself. Like maybe I would like chip out a little bead and have to replace it. And then I'd like go back and, you know, wouldn't be able to find where it had come from. <laughs> um, you know, it was very easy to kind of get lost in what I was doing, but particularly the part where I would be cleaning off the grout, you know, that was just kind of endless, you know, and you would sort of work on a section and think you were done and move on to another section and then realize that the first session like needed a little bit more cleaning and I have to go back to that. Um, but yeah, so, you know, I, I guess I feel like I've got a little squirrely sometimes, but it wasn't really stressful or, you know, I never was like, Oh, I hate doing this. Mm-hmm. Like I kind of could, mm-hmm. you know, put on music and, and mm-hmm. get into my group with it. Right. Right. I, um, could, and, I could see a Zen aspect to it, a meditative yeah, and aspect. And there's something nice about like having your work laid out for you. It was like, I mean, I knew mm. what I had to do in a day. It wasn't like, Oh, let me think about like, what am I going to make today? And do I want to put some red on the canvas or some blue today? You know, it was sort of like, okay, today memory wear. Yeah, right, right, right. Um, But, you know, it's funny. It's almost like uh, I think of it like uh, an actor in a role, like you have this role that you're in, right? So your whole, I mean, not your life is revolving around it, but your activity, you know, your day-to-day activity is very much based on that, right? Wasn't it? Yeah. And I mean, it's funny, like, so uh, you talked in the intro about how I used to make these little bootleg paintings that I would sell on the street. And, um, you know, when I was doing that, a lot of people, I mean, I talked to people because I was on the street selling them and they would come up and chit chat with me. And a lot of times people would ask me, you know, like, oh, do you really feel like you're sort of channeling these artists and like living in their shoes? And with the bootleg project, it was kind of about making things like quickly and easily. So, you know, they generally looked pretty good until you looked up close, but nothing was really labored over. And I sort of used collage a lot of times for the hard parts, as it were, of a Mm -hmm. painting. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, I think when I was doing those, I didn't really feel that much like, oh, I'm channeling the artist. But a lot of the works I've been doing in the past five or 10 years are kind of more, more akin to doing the same thing as the artist. So Mm -hmm. like, you know, making a Damien Hirst spot painting or making an Ankawara date painting or something like that, you know, Mm -hmm. when I'm hand painting it, um, you know, I do think like, okay, this is probably pretty similar to what the original artist would have been doing or perhaps Mm -hmm. his assistants would have been doing. Um, and that is kind of interesting for me. I mean, I, I have no idea. 
how hands-on Mike Kelly was with these pieces. I haven't mm-hmm. really been able to find that in the literature. I mean, given the number of them, I'm going to assume that he had studio assistants that did a lot of the work for him. And, you know, so I don't really know whether I was channeling Mike Kelly or mm-hmm. channeling Mike Kelly's studio assistant. But, you know, I did have a sense of like, yeah, you know, I am doing this in a very similar mm-hmm. way, you know, or or is it similar, you know, in kind of asking that question, you know, like, uh, I mean, I think, you know, I, the the actual materials for Mike Kelly's pieces are not really given, and I've kind of tried to reverse engineer them. And I, mm-hmm. I think that there were probably a few different types of adhesives that he used, but um, in, in different works. But, you know, I do think that I, like for the works that I reproduced, I think I used a very similar material and must have had a similar process of working. Mm-hmm. But, you know, mm-hmm. I don't really know. I've never been able to find any kind of studio documentation of, of how these things were made. So in a project like this, um, it's conceivable. That, I mean, your commitment um, to, to this for three years is 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 big, but conceivably Mike Kelly might have what do you what do you had you know didn't 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 do it all by him because he was a big successful artist with a lot of money in a big studio by then so what what do you how much do you imagine he actually did like what what's your feeling about it what's your feeling about it and does that matter does it matter that you made it and he didn't I mean you know I mean I'm if he didn't whatever tell right, us about right. that well, so as to the question of how much he did, I mean, like I was saying, I really, I have no way of knowing, you know, my suspicion is that he had a large hand in selecting the materials and, um, you know, in kind of conceptualizing them and maybe in making the first couple of them. But then I have to assume that he kind of handed off a lot of the grunt work to studio assistants Um, you know, I think as far as does that matter, um, I mean, to me, I mean, as, as whether I think it's a good artwork or not, I don't care whether he made it by hand or had studio assistants make it, um, you know, to me, it's really about the piece and the idea Mm -hmm. and being able to execute it. I do kind of think that there's something interesting about knowing that I did make it all by hand. Mm -hmm. And I mean that I did a bunch of reproductions of Damien Hirst spot paintings, or they weren't actually reproductions. They were my own spot paintings, but kind of following his model. And, you know, in that project, very famously, Damien Hirst doesn't paint those paintings. He has assistants mm-hmm. who he mm-hmm. says can paint them better than him, and they produce them all. And so, I, you know, there I was very much interested in this question of, okay, so, you know, Damien Hirst doesn't make his spot paintings, and he didn't make my spot paintings. And, you know, why is the one that's not made by him but signed by him mm-hmm. worth so much more than the one that's not made by him but signed by me? Mm-hmm. Um I think, you know, with these Mike Kelly pieces, it wasn't, it wasn't so much about that again, because I just, I don't really know how much hand he had in Mm -hmm. it, but, you know, given that, you know, I think 
the average person, if they were looking at one of Mike Kelly's pieces and one of my pieces side by side, could not discern which was the Mike Kelly. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so I think I am interested in, you know, at that point, what does it mean, whether it's his signature on the back or mine, you know, given that these things are not identical, but kind of indistinguishable from each other as far as mm-hmm. what's what's mm-hmm. the original and what's the copy. But yet, you know, one of his just sold for a million dollars and mine are not even selling for, you know, a, a tenth of that. So... <laughs> Yeah, yeah. It one of them just sold really recently, right? Tell us about yeah, that. Yeah, one, one like was, one of Mike Kelly's just this week. Yes, was at for auction at Phillips uh, Auction House in New York, and um, it was Memory Wear Flat Number Three. And let's see, it sold for uh, almost one point two million dollars. That's um, crazy. Yeah, <laughs> and he could have had the same thing. Almost really, really. And also, like, just personally, like, I have, um, I think I have the, I respect or I value that the artist you made it yourself. And in Mike Kelly's case, it doesn't seem like he had, you know, just the same commitment or what, it's just not the same, you know, I mean, you know, but then Mike Kelly is a much more famous, successful artist than myself. And he does have more of a name. And, you know, if you buy a Mike Kelly piece for 1.2 million, you can probably sell it for 1.5 million in a few years. And, you know, you're still not going to be able to get that for mine in a few years. But we're, we're, well, we never know. Um, We never know. (laughs) uh, You know, the thing is, is that, um, um, is that, um, was I going to say is that um, we, we, you know, what keeps bugging me. I'm just going to say this because I can't get past it. Um, I haven't, we, I have not mentioned Adam Cohen and a hug from the art world, which is the um, gallery, the mm-hmm, gallerist mm-hmm. that you're working with on this. And um, I just want to make sure that people realize that's who you're working with and that Adam is, Adam is, incredibly and a hug from the art world they have it's a very very good organization uh gal it's like what is it i don't know what to say is it an organization a gallery tell us about it a little bit um well uh, it's sort of a a, a one man show that adam runs it does a number of different things but primarily it's been doing um pop up uh exhibitions mm-hmm. um so this is my third show that I've done with him. Um, two of them were in pop-up spaces in Chelsea and one was at the Felix art fair in Los Angeles um, mm-hmm. two years ago. And that um, did really, really well. He's They did do well, but Adam is a great guy. I love working with him. And if any of the listeners are interested in buying something, they can contact him uh, <laughs> from the artworld.com. And I believe, well, I shouldn't talk about this too much, but it may, it, it may in the near future become a permanent space rather than a pop-up. Oh, that's cool. And you had famous yeah. artists come to your show uh, in Chelsea, uh, this particular least, show that we're Mar- discussing. Maurizio, Maurizio Catalan came to the show, which was great. Um, he's been a supporter of mine for a long time since I was out selling bootlegs on the street in Chelsea, and he bought a few. 
Um, he's put me in a couple of shows that he curated. And yeah, I was really happy that he got a chance to come in mm-hmm, and see the work. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure Jerry Salt must have been by. Um, I assume that he and Roberta saw this show because I kind of was in touch with them before it opened, but I don't know 100% that they actually made it there. <laughs> I'll bet they did. Uh, so, okay. Uh, back to... Um, so... How many, the process, so how many, um, like I'm wondering how much stuff you went through, how many five pound boxes did you get? Like how much stuff was that? (laughs) Uh, It was a lot. It's really hard for me to say because I kind of got it piecemeal. I mean, I started off making one that was black and white. So I was kind of looking mainly for things that were black and white and, and gold and silver. And then I sort of saved all the extra colored stuff that came in those boxes. And then I made two that were colored. And But, you know, I just, I, I would kind of buy more boxes as I needed stuff. So it's really hard for me to say how many of those boxes I went through. But, um, I mean, easily 100 pounds worth of stuff. Wow, because, wow. you know, a lot of it I couldn't use. Like I was saying, I couldn't use anything that was like leather uh-huh. or feather or what have you. And there were a lot of things like bangles that I would just get like a zillion of in these boxes. And, you know, I only wanted to put in like three. So <laughs> there, was, there was a fair amount of waste. You know, I would have to look for boxes that looked like they had a lot of stuff that was useful. So it's so funny that... Um you were in the middle of this project during the pandemic, like three years is a long time. Do you associate like this particular project with that period in your life and what happened during the pandemic and what happened during that whole period? Yeah, I do very much. I mean, it's actually kind of interesting. I I had finished the first piece before COVID hit and was kind of two thirds of the way through the second one. And, um, you know, all of a sudden I kind of couldn't get to my studio anymore because it was a subway ride away and I was not about to get on the subway. And then I wound up actually um, leaving New York and going to a a vacation house that my father has in Massachusetts. And, you know, at first that was going to be for like a couple of weeks and then that it was going to be for longer. So I actually drove back to New York and, um, picked up the piece that I was working on and drove that back out to the house and kind of set up a little studio in the garage there. Um, And so I finished the second piece actually in this kind of temporary COVID studio. And then the third piece, um, I moved to Los Angeles also during COVID and permanently, 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 I think (laughs) I'm still permanently for now. But I, I shipped the frame out. You to bought LA. a house. I you moved. Shipped, That's huge. Shipped the materials. You had yeah. to pack. You had to pack up your whole home and move during this whole process. Yes. Okay. I, I just did. want to and, point and, that out. And my studio. And, and your so, studio yeah, and everything. Okay. I'm pointing the that. memory I did wear it. flat came with me, and and I completely made the third one in Los Angeles. Mm-hmm. So they were actually all three were completed in different states, which is sort of interesting <laughs> given that I was a New Yorker for 20 years before that. That is really funny. So but yeah, I mean, I will, I will definitely remember this time and those works for sure. I mean, in, in my memory, they're inextricably linked. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, which is pretty funny. It's so funny because I love how the consistency of this particular work sort of must have given you some sort of stability or continuity during such an upheaval during so much upheaval in your own life right 
Yeah, I mean, I think like I was saying before, it was kind of nice to have something to work on and kind of, you know, know what I had to do with it. Like I didn't have to come up with a new idea or be thinking about like, what do I want to paint that's going to say how I feel about COVID or something <laughs> like that? You know, it's kind of like, okay, I'm going to go in the studio and spend five hours, you know, gluing rhinestones onto a piece of plywood. Oh, I bet it helped you keep, you know, help, you know, having that consistency. It, like did. Having I mean, it, gave, it gave me something to do and something to keep my mind off all the other scary wow. stuff that was happening. So it was kind of good in a certain way. That was good timing. And I, yeah, I, I mean, it was good to have the time. And I think also just not having distraction for a year and a half of like mm -hmm. going out to do things, you know, meant I had a lot of time in the studio. I wonder if you would have felt conflicted if you'd like, how am I going to, you know, if you would have felt more like conflicted about working on something like that, where you were, you know, I, I wonder. Mean, it, it, I probably would have been doing more other things simultaneously. So it probably would have taken me more time to finish yeah, three of them. For yeah. sure. Um, so we have 10 minutes left. Um, I want to um, understand what, what finishing that work was like and if, I want to understand what finishing the work was like. I want to understand what, um, you know, what, what you're, what, what you're work going to work on next and just the whole, you know, if you miss it or like what it's like, start, do you feel like you're, you know, that's crazy. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, there was, I mean, yeah, it was, it was difficult to work on something for so long. And also, you know, I mean, the work that I'm best known for, the bootleg paintings are very small, like the largest ones are 11 by 14 inches. And I, you know, I generally make fairly small work. I mean, I've done, I've made some larger paintings, but in general, I'm not someone that paints on like four by six foot canvases. And really, I mean, my studio in Brooklyn was 300 square feet. And when I worked on these pieces, I work on them flat, like a tabletop. So they, you know, one basically took up my whole studio and they're too heavy for me to move by myself. And just, there was a lot where I was like, oh, I'm never making anything again that is like this heavy and it takes this long and this this bulky. Um, now that I live in LA, there's a little bit more space. It kind of doesn't seem quite so like monumental, these pieces. So maybe I would make something that size again. But there definitely was a period where I was like, oh, I just hate how big and heavy these things mm. are, like how cumbersome they are. Mm -hmm. And, you know, like, I mean, whatever, shipping them means making a big mm -hmm. fancy crate and, you know, whatever. It's it's things that I do not usually have to deal with that were kind of a headache with mm -hmm. this. They um, weigh like 100, 150 pounds each or something like that. Yeah, I think right? probably like 150 plus mm -hmm. when they're Are they crate, fragile at all? The crate. I mean, could you... Did you worry about breaking them or are they real sturdy or? They're pretty sturdy. I mean, I had a little bit of worry, like when I shipped them across the country about things just popping out yeah, in transit, right. but that didn't happen, which mm -hmm. felt mm -hmm. good about their No, but they're, they're cumbersome. It's not like working on a canvas or anything else. Yeah, I mean, they're, they're heavy. It's, cement. it's hard to move that. Yeah. That's the yeah. main thing. Yeah. So yeah, they're really heavy. So that was not, that was something you're not, you don't miss. Yeah. 
Yeah, so I definitely want to work on some things that are kind of um, faster and easier and lighter, mm-hmm. you know. And, and I think just things like these pieces were really labor intensive, and um, you know, I while I enjoyed the labor, I think there's something that's also nice for me about like making the bootleg paintings, which are kind of fast and like, don't have to be perfect. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, they're just a little bit more casual, I guess, or less finicky, less demanding. So, um, you know, as far as what I'm making next, like I have an idea for a new bootleg that I want to work on that, you know, should come together relatively quickly. I also started working on these pieces, um, before I, so I, I was kind of right when I finished the memory where, and actually I should get back to talking about finishing it. Cause that was another part of your question, but I'll finish with what's upcoming. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> after I finished the third one, pretty much right after that, I moved my house and my studio within Los Angeles. Um, and so I, I'm still kind of getting set up in the new place. And I, I haven't really been making any art since I moved because I'm still trying to get the studio set up. But before I moved, I had started on these pieces that are um, based on some works that Tom Sachs made that are um, McDonald's value meals, but made out of like Tiffany packaging and Hermes. Oh. Um, <laughs> so that's probably what I'll go back to kind of once I'm back in the studio. Mm -hmm. Um, But it'll be nice to pull out what I had done and kind of take a look at it after a few months away and see what's worth keeping and what's worth saving. Mm -hmm. Um, But to go back to your question about finishing the works, I mean, there was, you know, uh, I guess, you know, because they took so long, it was very exciting or sort of scary to think about finishing them. And certainly there was a point like when I was laying everything in, like when I put in that last little patch of grout and laid in the last mm-hmm. few pieces, like that was very exciting. Mm-hmm. But then I would have to go back and do all of this cleaning of them. And that was not only very painstaking, but also, you know, it was the kind of thing where I could have done that forever. You know, like there was always uh, a little bit more that could have been cleaned off. Uh. And so sort of, there was always a question of like, when is it good enough? Like when, when can I stop and say that this is at a point where I'm happy with it being, you know, clean enough. And, you know, I think for each one, there was a period where I was like telling my wife every morning, you know, like, Oh, I think I'm going to finish it today. And then, (laughs) you know, no, it's not quite done. I just have a little bit more. Um, So, you know, that was hard, I guess, because it, you know, it, it was kind of a question of like, when can I leave this? Ah. And, and it was the kind of thing where like, I could have continued on and on and on and on and on. But at a certain point I had to say, it's already been more love hours than it could be repaid. And, and it's time to, to <laughs> Did, call this one done. That's interesting. So Cathay, your, your wonderful, lovely wife um, also went through this with you. So d- was there anything that like, do you, did she have anything that particularly affected her or do you, did she make fun of you or was there anything that you remember in particular that Kathy's um, take on your experience being around somebody who's doing that all the time? She, no, she like, I mean, get out there and get a job. Why don't you go I, <laughs> flip I think some that she, 
I think that she was, I mean, I, she was supportive of me while I was doing it. I think she mm-hmm. was glad when they were done. There was kind of this moment where we were doing this move and, you know, I, was, I really wanted to finish the last memory wear piece before we moved so that I wouldn't have to move it to the new house and then ship it to New York. Mm. And so there was kind of this like mm. race to finish that. And, and I also wanted to like finish it before I dealt with the packing of all of our stuff because Mm -hmm. it was like, I really want to get this done and ship it. And then I can focus on the packing. So that she got a little antsy about towards Mm. the end. She's like, are you done yet? Are you done yet? (laughs) Like, you know, can, can we move? Can we book the movers? Um, But you know, it, it did wind up getting done in time. Yeah. That's not, that's, that's not much, but did you, did you miss it? Like when it was done, are you like, did you like, was there a routine that you're like, eh, I can't do that anymore? Did you miss the routine of it? I do a little bit miss the routine of it. And I, you know, I was kind of curious what would happen with this show and like, would there be enough demand that I would like need to make a fourth one oh, and stuff like mm. that, um, which didn't wind up being a problem. <laughs> but, um, you know, I think, I mean, I still have a bunch of leftover materials and possibly I'll make mm-hmm. another one at mm-hmm. some point, but I kind of feel glad to be done with it and just, mm-hmm. you know, like it, I spent so much time on them that it's nice to not be doing that anymore. We only have like one and a half minutes left, but you know, the most important thing is where you, we didn't even get to, are you satisfied? Were you happy with the show when you saw it all together? How satisfying was that satisfying? How satisfying was that? What was that like? Uh, it was very satisfying. I mean, I had never actually seen all three pieces together because they were made in different places. And um, like I was saying, I, I work I work on them flat, like a tabletop. And so two of them I had also never even seen on the wall. I had only mm. seen them like while I was working on them. So it was great to see them together. And um, yeah, I was very happy with how they came out and the exhibition and, and how it all looked. So mm-hmm. that, you know, that, that part was satisfying for uh, sure. Oh, good, good. I am so, I am so happy because that would have sucked. <laughs> <laughs> but you knew, you knew, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it, 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 there's no surprise there that, you know, it was a great exhibition. There's no, Yeah, but it, it was weird. I mean, there were, there were two that were sort of the same size and used similar kind of multicolored materials and, I had made the second one without being able to refer back to the first one uh, because of moving. Yeah. So it was kind of, you know, like I wasn't quite sure was one going to be much denser than the other uh, or would there be some like obvious difference between the two, mm-hmm. but um, it, mm-hmm. it looked pretty good. Yeah. And I'm sure you got an amazing response. People, people seem to like them. Yeah. People who, who made it there. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm sure. So anyway, uh, I've got to like rush off. I've got to say thank you all for listening. Uh, thank you for listening to Dr. Lisa Gives a Shit. I'm every here every Thursday. Go to my uh, show page on RadioFreeBrooklyn.org. And don't forget to go to RadioFreeBrooklyn.org slash donate. 